Today's passage comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you continue to speak. May we be a people who continue to hear in more deep and meaningful ways that we might receive your love in the depths of who we are and so be able to better give your love to everyone we come in contact with. God, continue your transformational project within us as we rest in all that you've called us to be in our union with you, our intimacy with you, and so a deeper integrity because of you. Thank you for hearing our prayer. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, near the end of almost any race, something astounding happens. It could be a 5K. It could be a marathon. It doesn't really matter the distance, but if you're pushing to your nth degree, if you're really trying to go out hard to get a great time, You could feel like you're about to die midway or two-thirds of the way through a run and you can't go any faster until suddenly you see the finish line and something astounding happens. Everything within you seems to discover this new jolt of energy. And in that moment, you can actually kick it up a notch to the finish. If you've ever run a race or, you know, are involved in a sport and there's like 30 seconds left and you finally have this opportunity to tie it. There's, there's this astounding newfound energy that comes out of nowhere. Alex Hutchinson in his book, Endure, notes this. He says, conventional physiology suggests that you get progressively more fatigued over the course of a run as muscle fibers fail and fuel stores are emptied. But then when the end is in sight, you speed up. Clearly, your muscles were capable of going faster in the preceding miles. So why didn't they? In running, neuroscientists have tried to figure out why this is. And you can imagine, you have people trying to break records. This could be good money. You could finally sell those pair of shoes you're always wanting to sell. If you can figure out the secret to unlocking this. And they've only begun to understand how the body and the brain work together. When you're weary and the landscape is unknown, It's fascinating, your brain actually begins to send defense signals to your body like a governor, slowing it down in order to maintain that speed over a longer period of time. But when you see the end in sight, it's like your brain begins to calculate its fuel cells 
And seeing the insight begins to open the floodgates so that now your body can go to extraordinary speeds that you thought were impossible about midway through the race. This is why most trainers will admit that the most significant days of any sort of training program are the days you don't want to train, but you do it anyway. It's when you'd rather sleep in, but you get out of bed. It's when you'd rather back out, but instead you lean in. It's when you're really sore and you feel like you've got nothing left or there's snow on the ground, so you don't want to go outside. And, and the reason why these days are so important is because in those moments, you're training your body. You're telling your body that it can go further than it once thought possible. You're not ignoring your feelings, but instead you're remembering that you have a part to play in how you feel. And when everything within you feels like it won't make it, you're actually creating new memories of victory, new neural pathways that expand your capacity, your mental capacity for endurance. You see, every athlete, every musician, every artist knows the most important days of growth and development happen when we'd rather just not keep at it. This is when the deepest change actually happens in your life and mine which naturally leads us to our series. This is the final week of a five-week series entitled, We Can Change, as we unpack Romans chapter 12 and a gospel-shaped change theory. We saw on week one that the starting place for all of this change is with love. Only love can change you. When you actually receive and rest in a secure attachment with God and his unconditional love towards us, this is the catalyst and the beginning work to the deep change that the gospel wants to bring about in your life and mine. In week two, we saw that you cannot change any part of you without employing every part of you. This is a whole being pursuit. It's all of your body, all of your mind, your left and your right hemispheres integrating with your whole body towards the change that God wants to bring about in you. Week three, we saw that your change must include a we, not just a me. We must have people around us speaking into us, and we must have a group identity that informs our values and shapes deep wells of our character and continues to inform a new library from which we pull from. And then in week four, we saw that your change needs us to fight for us. As the body of Christ, we need to fight for who God has called us and made us to be as the church. And we talked about how narcissism can be one of the greatest enemies to our community surviving and one of the greatest threats to your change in mind is communal sabotage. And so we talked about some tools on how to navigate that together. Well, today, the last week of a five-week journey, if you're honest, if I'm honest, if we're honest with each other, we're pretty weary, right? Um, kind of the landscape, the emotional thermometer of our world right now is that most of us just aren't okay. And that's okay to not be okay. We can name that. We can say that. I mean, listen, for some of you this last week, it was the first week of school. If you're a parent um, doing this hybrid model or doing online only or even just sending your kid into school, that's pretty intense. If you're a teacher or an administrator, I know you've been pulling your hair out trying to do the best by your students and your teachers and your staff. Every single one of us is wrestling through the pain of isolation and distance and just life not being the way it used to be. 
Leaders are uncertain on how to give direction in the midst of the complexities of our world as it currently is. COVID, man, who isn't done with COVID? But COVID isn't done with us, and it's continuing to impact our economy. We have continuing rising unemployment. And, and for some of you, your work has just got more complex. Some of you are still working from home. Others of you are kind of like an alternating schedule. You go in one week, you're at home the next. Others of you have been working throughout the whole pandemic and the stressors that come with that. And then on top of all of this, we're in an extremely polarized election season. So it can be really tempting when we feel really weary to just kind of throw in the towel. When the going gets tough, to just call it quits. To not watch a service online, let alone attend one in person. The lack of energy we feel to do anything, to barely even look at our Bibles, let alone open it and engage in the discipline of study and prayer. We don't want to put in the energy to be with others, but frankly, it feels more terrifying to be alone. And all of this turmoil, this weariness, it's kind of got us to this point in this series to say, hey, you know what we need more than anything is kind of like a pandemic pep talk. You know, in the midst of all this change and this talk of change, we need to remember we can indeed change. You see, the truth is we've never needed change more than we need it now. And change is never easy. And yet on so many levels, Change right now feels like it's further out of reach than it's ever been. And that's why I'm so grateful for this letter to the church in Rome, affectionately called Romans, right? Because they were pretty weary here too. Paul's giving them a bit of a pep talk there in Rome in the first century. Now, they're not dealing with a pandemic, but they've got their own pressures. They're wrestling with their own battles of suffering. And they're tempted to give up too. But the Apostle Paul, he won't let them get up, give up. He won't let us give up. He won't let you give up. He won't let me give up. And here's why. Because he knows something so deeply true about us as human beings when it comes to transformation and what God wants to do in your life and mine. Here's our thesis for today. The big idea behind this pep talk is that your deepest change happens in the hardest moments. Your deepest change happens in the hardest moments. It's in moments like these where God is actually doing some real deep work in you and me and in us together. And so today, I'm going to give you three reasons why to keep going that are anchored here in the text. Three reasons that when life is really hard, we can know that God is doing something deeply astounding within us, both personally and collectively. And if we'll keep opening our hearts to his love and the love of the church, our body, God's going to do something astounding, okay? So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to begin here in verse 9. And here's the first reason why that if when you're tempted to back out, you lean in, this is what you'll experience. You'll actually feel the love more genuinely. You'll feel the love more genuinely. Look with me here at verse 9. We read, let love be genuine. Now, interestingly enough, in the Greek, so the original language in which it is translated into English, it literally reads, the love sincere. The love sincere, which is a really awkward grammatical structure, okay? But most commentators agree that it's the guiding light for the remainder of Romans chapter 12. So let me make a couple observations. One, there is a definite article here. It is the love, not just any love or a love, but the love. It is the Greek word agape. 
And so we are to understand the agape. And what is the agape? But across the pages of scripture, the agape that's on display, that has the center of our focus, that defines every other love, is God's unending love for you and for me. It's his loyal love that's unconditional, that's always persevering, always pursuing you and me, seeking our good, even when we want to seek our own destruction. And frankly, it's this love that's on the pages, frankly, of the first 11 chapters of Romans that the Apostle Paul has been detailing out that in the view of the mercies of God's love towards us, all of this is the catalyst for our change. This is the very love that is the lifeblood of the Christian community. It comes from God, it's modeled by Jesus, and it's empowered by the Spirit. This is the love that we are commanded to embody. We see it in the greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We see it in Jesus' new commandment that you are to love one another and that we are to be known by his love. And then when this fuel, when this love is actually fueling our community, when you look in the text, it has drastic impact on how we engage one another and how our community is experienced and who we are called to be, right? We actually abhor what's evil when we're driven by this love. We hold fast to what's good for one another. Our love begins to feel like a family and we experience brotherly and sisterly affection. We actually outdo one another in showing honor instead of trying to hoard honor or suck honor from others. Instead, we're trying to outdo showing other people honor. We're not slothful in zeal. We're fervent in the spirit. We're serving the Lord and we contribute to the needs of one another and actually seek to show hospitality, opening up our homes and our hearts one to another. It drastically changes who we are when this love is embodying our community. And it's meant to be sincere. So the love sincere. That means genuine, unhypocritical. It's not a performance. We're not trying to earn points. It's not a have to, but it's a get to. Because when we've rested in God's love, the agape, and it's gone to the core of who we are and we're secure in him and it flows out of us it becomes transformative in the deepest parts of who we are so that our outworking actually begins to look like his agape now i don't know about you but this feels ridiculously more difficult today now than ever um and there's a couple factors for that i mean just in the church like not even looking at those who aren't following Jesus, but, but this collective desire when people come together to learn more about Jesus and follow him together. We have racial division that's still experienced. We have political division. We have isolation and physical separation happening right now. And what happens when we're separated from one another? It actually breeds more suspicion, right? When you're frustrated and we're experiencing all this division, when we're isolated from one another, we naturally become more skeptical rather than more trusting. So how do we do this? We got to go back to week one of this whole change paradigm and we need to rest in God's unending love for us because only love can change you, can change me, can change us. We need to keep our lives in view of the mercies of God. We need to remember who we are, that in chapter 1, verse 7, we are the beloved. And right here in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, again, the Apostle Paul calls us the beloved. We are the ones loved by God. And what's astounding about this love, this agape, is that it never stops. 
The Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jump back to Romans chapter 8. And he does this extraordinary just detailing out of, of the brilliance and the sustaining power of God's love. And just look at verses 38 and 39. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing! Nothing can separate us from God's love. It'll never stop. Ever. It's always pursuing us. But what's so fascinating is not only that God's love never stops, it never ends. That's to be true of our love as well for one another. You see, if our love is to be genuine, if it's meant to be an overflow, an outflowing of what we've received from God, then our love one, towards for an, one, our love one for another should never know an end. Nothing should be able to separate us from our love for one another. We are to be a community that knows no end to our love in real tangible ways. And that means that this agape, this love, it's bigger than what divides us, it's bigger than what frustrates us, it's bigger than our problems, and it's bigger than our pain. And so listen to me, when we don't withdraw, when we don't ghost one another, when we don't just engage in the minimal format we possibly can, when we don't believe the promise of individualism, and what's the promise of individualism? When I'm having a tough time, I just need to get alone, right? No, and, and to be clear, the discipline of solitude is really important, but solitude isn't getting alone with me, myself, and I. Solitude is getting alone with God and listening to Him and actually receiving, once again, that love from Him. No, individualism says you need to get away all by yourself and just get some me time and do you. But that's actually not the path to greater resilience, growth, and life. So if we don't believe the promise of individualism, and we actually live out who we are when we let God's never-ending love define our never-ending love for one another. When you feel like backing out, but instead you lean in. The church defined by this kind of agape, then you'll actually allow that agape to keep you attached to one another. And listen, listen, when that happens, you'll feel the love more genuinely than you've ever had in your life. When you stay attached to others, you begin to feel that love more genuinely. How so? Okay, we've all maybe at one point or another had really hard moments and you had a friend who walked through it with you, right? We, don't, we not only know in those moments that they love us, but we also feel their love more because when they have a lot of other excuses to avoid our pain, when they have a lot of other reasons why they could walk away, but instead they stick with us and they walk through it. When they stay attached to us, we feel their love in a new way, in a deeper way, in a more meaningful way. You see, when it's hardest, that's when God is inviting us to know his love more deeply and the love of others more deeply. Hard moments in life can actually be a moment to see God's love more clearly and receive it more deeply if we stay attached to one another. So don't let up. Instead, lean in, right? So when, when you do lean in instead of back out, the second reason of why this is so important and so good for you is that you'll actually know joy more transcendently. So you'll not only know or feel the love more genuinely, you'll know 
the joy of God more transcendently. Look with me at verse 12. We read, rejoice in hope. Remember, they're experiencing suffering and pressure and persecution. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Paul is both describing and imploring God's people to be a body of joy. Joy in what they are becoming, joy in the relationship and the attachment they have to God and to one another, joy in what God is doing in and through them, despite what they're currently experiencing, and to be praying their hearts out through the whole deal, right? You see, joy is maybe one of the most important emotions in our lives, and frankly, one of the most often misunderstood. What do I mean? Well, joy, more than just being a emotion, joy is described as a supra emotion, right? New words, new language. This is pretty powerful. This is pretty impactful for me as a person as I've been diving into it. Joy is described as a supra emotion. What does that mean? It has the capacity to come alongside of negative feelings or emotions and actually transcend them. It doesn't minimize them. It doesn't erase them. It doesn't treat them as if they're not real, but it actually can transcend them. Joy isn't the absence of pain. It's not the absence of heartache or hardship or suffering or sadness even but it can be a condition we experience amidst those other emotions and circumstances. And maybe most importantly, this is the part that's often left out, is that joy, joy is essentially relational at its core. Remember, this, what the Apostle Paul is writing in chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, isn't written to an isolated individual. It's written to a community of faith a community of believers, a body, a community walking through suffering together with Christ. And so physical presence has a massive impact on our joy scale. Joy is charged by just seeing someone else smile. Your body has like facial recognition software built into it that when you see someone smile, it ignites a chemical reaction that begins to produce happiness and joy. It therefore shouldn't be surprising, and we've been talking about this for quite a while now in the realm of technology, that many are seeing how joy and screen time are inversely proportional. Rather than being physically present, it doesn't have the same impact and effect on us as human beings. So is there any wonder why right now, when we're more isolated than ever and we're trying to care for one another, right, by doing so, and even just being at home and maybe even just watching church online and these kinds of things, the things that sometimes we kind of have to do, is it any wonder why we're struggling so much? And as important as masks are, covering up our smiles is really hard. Like, none of this is easy. And when we don't have joy, then we become more vulnerable to these pseudo-joys. These addictions, as they're often called, to something or practices that kind of numb our negative emotions for a short period of time rather than transcending them with joy. But listen, in, the, in, in Jesus and in his church, when life is hard, when it's painful, when it's awful, and we know that God and his love is still with us, joy can actually be born alongside of sadness. This is where we start to make sense of some of these scriptures. They both exist together. But now joy is breaking in. And this only grows in an even more transcendent way when we're staying attached to other followers of Jesus who when life is hard, they walk through the pain with us. When life is hard, they won't give up 
on you or me. When life is hard, we won't give up on them, right? We have a deep attachment one to another. There's some reciprocity. When life gets hard, they're the kind of people who are genuinely happy to be with us in the mess. When life gets hard, they communicate. We belong even when we want to run away because we don't feel like we belong anywhere. When, 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 when life gets hard, they're the kinds of people who remind us that we're special to them even though we feel like the biggest burden to them. That's when joy breaks in. That's the kind of community that Jesus is making. That's why we have to keep leaning in rather than backing out. Because then you'll know joy more transcendently. And this is the brilliant design of God's church. Remember, God's ultimate goal for you and I isn't to keep us where we are, but it's to grow us in maturity, that we might know deeper wholeness, of course, of which joy is an integral part. This is why James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3 makes sense, right? Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Joy happens when even though you're suffering, you actually experience God's presence with you, and that is often mediated when other followers of Jesus are walking through it with you. Think back to a time in your life when somebody walked through pain with you. Not only did you feel love more deeply, but chances are really good you have a fondness of that memory. Not because of the pain you experienced, but because of how that deepened your attachment, your care, and your, the, the feeling of joy that somebody would be willing to walk through that with you. If that has never been a part of your story or it's really difficult to remember a moment like that in your story, then of course the allure of individualism, of separation, can be very, very powerful. But that's not what God has for you. It's not what he has for me. It's not what he has for us. Paul here is calling this body to be who she is, a place, a people where joy grows because we walk through everything together and our love is as committed to one another as God's love is committed to us. So don't let up. Lean in. And when you do that, here's the third reason. You'll actually see the Spirit do the impossible. You see, out of all the things that Jesus calls us to actually be, not just a code of conduct that we look at and we go, fail, fail, fail. Thank goodness there's grace. No, 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 no. The most outrageous identity marker that Jesus actually wants his people to embody is that we love our enemies. <laughs> it's kind of outrageous, right? Paul's basically, in verses 14 through 21, giving us a midrash of Jesus' charge to love our enemies, to bless those who hurt you, and pursue your destruction, never to avenge the wrongs that have been caused against you, never get cocky for being in the right, pursue meeting the needs of your enemies. So that's like a proactive move towards them. Return evil deeds for good deeds without any air of self-righteousness. Have you seen this done anywhere lately? That's a tough one. The only way that this can happen and not be a performance, the love sincere is when it's driven by real love. And that cannot exist without receiving God's love in Christ. This is the ultimate mark of maturity, loving your enemies genuinely. And if we change, we grow, we mature to be like Jesus, this impossible work actually flows out of us. And you cannot become 
that kind of person. If you isolate yourself, you cannot become that kind of person. If you just associate with affinity groups that all match exactly where you are in your life, you cannot become that kind of person. If you find your primary identity in any other group other than Jesus's people, because that's not the primary framework by any of those groups other than the one that Jesus calls us to be of, which is a community made up of a diverse political, racial, gender, socioeconomic, you name it. It's this diverse group of people that frankly it's hard enough to love each other, let alone thinking about loving our enemies. And here's what's really important. If you look at your Bibles, we need to understand that verses 14 through 21 will not happen. This midrash on loving our enemies without verses 9 through 13. If there is not a space where you're living in community, modeling and embracing and experiencing deep, loving attachment with other believers, you have no hope of experiencing verses 14 through 21. The training ground where God brings about this work is in verses 9 through 13. It's in his church where he's forming us. You know, Ephesians 5 is a fascinating little deal, okay? And I'm just going to touch on this quickly. There's a really common phrase that the Apostle Paul uses. Well, it's common because we in Christian circles use it a lot, but it actually happens only in Ephesians 5 or a couple other places. But in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit, right? And so often throughout my childhood and through so many different spiritual formation spaces, it was talked about very individualistically. Like how do I as an individual, individual Christian get filled with the Spirit? But the reality and some of the best scholarship out now is understanding that actually those verbs are plural. The yous, Y-O-U, are plural. That this being filled by the Holy Spirit, it happens when the Spirit is among the church gathered. These specific practices of singing spiritual songs and hymns and speaking to one another in love and truth. This is the place where we become the people who can actually love our enemies. Why? Because our attachment with God is intimately connected to our attachment to others. And growing in deep and meaningful relationships with other believers will actually deepen our relationship with God. And when that happens, the Spirit can actually do the impossible through us. But it takes other people. So don't give up. Instead, lean in. Because then you'll know the, and you'll feel the love more genuinely You'll know joy more transcendently and you'll get to see the Spirit do the impossible. So come, reach out. Let others reach out to you. Engage in church, engage in community group, care for each other, walk with each other, love each other as God and Christ loves us with a never-ending, never-stopping, always and forever love. You see, our world, I don't know what the fall holds. It may not get better. It may get worse. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But I can rejoice in hope here among God's people that we can indeed change. And doesn't our world need us to continue to change? Not because we in and of ourselves are the only thing that, that's good that's happening in the world, but there's something very unique that Jesus, the hope of the world, has instilled within his people who are now to be the hope in the world. But that only happens when we keep leaning in. And I think we can. We just need a little pep talk now and again. And there's one more person who I thought just had the perfect word for the perfect moment. 
and I wanted us to listen to his pep talk. So let's do that now. Scene. So there'll be like a little video, it's the kid president who does something, and then I'm gonna do the communion piece real quick, okay? Right, is that okay to do? Okay. Oh, hold it. Hold. Is that full? Full of malarkey. <laughs> hey, Janice, it's full of malarkey. Love changes everything. Wise words, wise words. Well, one meal that every Sunday has endured various geopolitical climates and contexts, but always has been a place filling God's diverse people with God's love and has been a source of nourishment is the Lord's Supper. You see, here at the Lord's Supper, we remember all that God in Christ has done for us. Through common broken bread, we remember his body torn for us. And through common juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And this good news, it's proclaimed to our senses of taste and touch and smell. And when possible, we partake together to remind us of the staying power of God's love and how it's bound us together in him. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have these elements available to you, I'd encourage you to take this time now and to partake in the Lord's Supper. And if you don't have the elements or you need to scramble to go grab them, just pause this video right here and you can get those together and grab some of your housemates, your loft mates, um, whoever's around you and partake in remembrance of him. But before we do, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as God's people have done for over 2,000 years, take and eat. <laughs> 